Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of UpZone, a show where we explore one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and today I am joined by our regular co-host and founder of the Strong Towns organization, Chuck Marone. Welcome. How are you doing these days? Hey, Abby. Doing fantastic. Things are a little tense here in Minnesota, but you know, my family is all healthy. And I actually had a COVID test because I took a trip out of state and my family said, you need to get a test now. And I do not have COVID, which I didn't think I did, but now everybody is assured. So yeah. Well, congratulations. You Thank should you. Uh, you should hang that up on the refrigerator. That's what we did. <laughs> well, they sent it to me digitally. So I, maybe I'll print it out and, and do it. Or maybe I could post it to Facebook. Maybe that would make it official. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You could post it to Facebook. Yeah. We got one in the mail when we took ours and um, it came back negative and I put it on the refrigerator. So <laughs> something to celebrate. Yeah. I had to do the spit test one, which I don't know what, what kind you had. My kids had one like in September because some girls on their dance team had it and they had to go in and get one and they got the shove it up your nose kind, which they yeah. hated. Yeah. They did not like that. Yeah, um, we got the brain scramble one too. <laughs> yeah, I got the spit in a tube one that you mail back in and they sit and watch you do it on Zoom, which sounds really uncomfortable and it kind of is. But the worst part of it is, I mean, it's, I'm not going to complain because I was not sick and, you know, all this. But you sit there for like 15 minutes trying to build up saliva in your mouth and you can't do it when someone's watching you and you like your mouth doesn't. You have to give them like, it's like a vial of saliva and it's really like, it's really hard to do, especially when you can't eat, you can't drink, you can't do anything. You just have to sit there and spit in this thing while someone watches you on Zoom. And it's, I don't know. I mean, it was better than getting the thing shoved up your nose, I'm guessing, but it was still kind of weird. Yeah, that's disgusting. <laughs> I, one year ago, would you imagine that if somebody told you one year ago that you'd be sitting on a Zoom call spitting in front of somebody, uh -huh. you would have thought no. they were crazy. <laughs> and she was very nice. I mean, she was very interesting. She's from Panama uh, or, you know, she had been working in Panama and was home for COVID, but then was hoping to go back. And so we had a nice conversation, but like while in between me trying to like hack in this, you know, vile so it was kind of it was just weird <laughs> we we live in such a weird time don't we <laughs> yeah this is the weirdest time let's the talk about time. cities that are going to no longer be with us oh, well that's a blunt way of putting it but <laughs> just cutting right to the chase today um yeah so today we're going to be talking about an op-ed that was published in the casper star tribune it was authored by nate martin entitled Wyoming needs to bite the bullet. So the author reports how Wyoming is facing a projected uh, $1.5 billion revenue shortfall over the next two years, largely due to the collapse of the state's coal industry and the economic fallout of the coronavirus shutdowns. So according to the article, the state is considering significant cuts to public services, including the abandonment of providing infrastructure funding to small towns. 
Martin, however, calls for the state to reconsider their tax structure, advocating that Wyomingites ought to start taxing income in order to continue supporting things like schools, roads, hospitals, firefighters, and other basic public services. So based on the tone of this article, though, it appears that that is a very tall order because Wyoming has had the luxury of essentially being supported by different industries for decades, and that allowed their residents to enjoy very low taxes. Wyoming is uh, its one of nine states, it says, without a personal or corporate income tax and is home to the third lowest property tax and sixth lowest sales tax rates in the nation. So according to this article, it's interesting for a number of reasons. But at first, I really want to get into the author's proposal to simply replace the industrial tax revenues by taxing income. I'm a little bit skeptical that simply adopting an income tax from the residents would be sufficient to replace the revenues generated by the coal industry in Wyoming, although I've certainly not done the math on this. So I I wonder, Chuck, what your first impressions are of using income tax as a solution to get out of this predicament that Wyoming is facing. Well, let's go a step deeper, because this is always my (laughs) – I'll say this, and I'll say this in a – I'm trying to say this in a kind way. People ask me, like, why don't you ever vote for Democrats? You seem like you have so much aligned with them. And I'm like, I do in terms of the objectives or the things that they care about. But this is where I struggle because the idea here is that it's a revenue problem and it's not a revenue problem. There's something a step below that that is a deeper dysfunction that revenue, more revenue would cover up for a little bit of time, but it wouldn't actually address and I, and I think this is where so many of our problems today, we treat them like they're mere revenue problems or they're mere cash flow problems. Like, you know, if we just borrow this money or if we just, you know, tap into this grant program or if we just add this tax, it will solve the problem. And what it does is it, yes, alleviates the symptoms that you're dealing with now, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. The, the problem of cities in Western United States, if I could sum it up, is that they are based almost entirely on extractive economies. When you're in an extractive economy, your number one goal is to have the cheapest commodity. If you're dealing with wheat, if you're dealing with sugar beets, if you're dealing with coal, you're not trying to develop like your own special brand of coal. It's not like you're saying, you know, okay, God, uh, let's work with this, you know, Uh, deposit under the earth for thousands of years to make it like special Wyoming coal, you're dealing with the coal you have there. Like it's, it's there. You can't change it or fix it. All you can do is dig it up. And when that's your whole economy, the goal of that economy is to deliver that coal as cheap as possible. And that means you have every incentive to cut every cost and to think very, very short term. The thing that I see Western states struggle with is that they have economies based on extraction. And so they have development patterns essentially reflecting those economies. And the Western states are for a large, for a large part, and there, there are exceptions, you know, there's some very notable exceptions, but for the most part, the Western cities are largely a byproduct of post-World War II development through extractive uses. 
and they are all functionally insolvent. And and adding a little bit more revenue, like let's say let's tax this or let's tax that, does not do anything to change that fundamental underlying insolvency. It may allow you to put it off for a little while, but it doesn't actually deal with it. And that's the that's the problem. That was my thinking as well, that that you know, income tax may be a band-aid, but it doesn't really solve things long term. The the article provided some background on how Wyoming has been generating revenue over the years. And what I thought was really intriguing about that is is that this is not the first time Wyoming has been in a position like this. According to the author, the state used to be heavily reliant on a declining agriculture industry until the late 60s. And at that point, their governor found that the state's general fund had a balance of $80. And so the state of Wyoming was essentially forced into restructuring their tax system to instead rely on another industry. So that was the oil and coal industry, which has supported them for several decades until recently. So with that source of revenue now drying up, there seems to be no moonshot industry or no moonshot revenue source that can reasonably replace what they are expecting. And we've talked about the fragility of over-relying on a small number of tax revenue sources before on this show in response to that article in, in the late spring that talked about municipalities that were expected to feel the most immediate impacts of COVID-19 shutdowns. And those were the cities that were over-reliant on elastic revenue sources like sales income or even tourism taxes. And, you know, I'm, I'm seeing that now with my own city where they're having very painful budget cuts. This predicament that Wyoming is facing seems to be that same principle playing out at an even greater scale where the state has really gone all in on whatever industry is going to be most successful to them. And that's their primary revenue source without any clear plan for diversifying or seeking out more long-term strategies. Yeah. I think it's easy for us to look at a country like Saudi Arabia. And we can look at them and we can say, wow, what a basket case. I mean, they've got all this oil, but they're not doing anything to properly educate their people, to diversify their economy, to create uh, local feedback loops that would you know, shift them away from a, a total dependence on oil. And as outsiders, it's very easy to levy that criticism and say, you know, if the Saudi leadership were far thinking, if they, you know, cared about their people, you know, we can go on and on and on, they would divert some of that income, some of that resource to doing these other things. Now, someone's going to email me and say, well, they are doing that in Saudi Arabia. And yes, there's always been talk about them doing that to some degree. They still have, you know, for for advanced countries, uh, for countries of you know their level of technology and sophistication, they have ridiculously high levels of unemployment. They have ridiculously high levels of poverty. Things that, given their wealth and given the amount of wealth that's been extracted out of there, they should have already dealt with. We have here in Minnesota, up on the Iron Range, we have an extractive economy, and I've had the opportunity to speak many times up there, to spend a lot of time up there, to chat with a lot of people. And the argument that I have 
continuously made, although been very unsuccessful for the most part, is that these resources you have, these minerals you have in the ground, whether it's iron ore, whether it's copper, nickel, you know, regardless of what it is, manganese is a big one up on the Iron Range here in Minnesota. It is there in the ground. It is not going anywhere. All that is happening as time goes on is that it becomes more valuable. All that is happening as time goes on is that it becomes, in a sense, a better market to bring it to market in. It's not like, you know, God is making more iron. You know, it's not like like the earth is manufacturing at any type of scale more nickel in the ground. It's just not. It's there and we will extract what's there and then that is all that there is. So the only competition that you have for bringing this out of the ground in terms of like doing it in a way that benefits your people, the only competition you have for this is that someone will figure out a way to do things without the mineral that you have. You know, we'll move away from coal or we won't use coal anymore or we won't need nickel or we won't need copper. I think that those things are very unlikely. And so my advice to these places has always been start with your people. Start with your place. What do you need to lead a good life and to have a prosperous place? And then how can this extraction be a part of getting you to that? As opposed to how can you just be on this hamster wheel until it falls apart? The Western states are stuck on this hamster wheel. They're, they're, they have positioned themselves in such a way where they have boom-bust economies. They are essentially selling their core resource without getting enough back to actually build wealth and prosperity. The worst part of it, the part that kind of galls me the most, is that they overlay that with this high burn, high consumptive development pattern that actually robs whatever modest wealth and resource they're able to create, extracts that from them as quickly as possible. I feel like the Western states need a a new economic model. And I think we should start thinking of them the same way, you know, we send our trade representatives to talk to Saudi Arabia about their new model. And back in the 80s and 90s, we talked to China about their new model. I think we have to start talking in our Western states about this same kind of a internal development strategy. And property tax and sales tax or income tax may be parts of those, you know, those narratives, but I don't think it is today. I think today it is more a question of how do we transition to an economy like that? Well, I think one of the biggest red flags about their model was when I was reading that Governor Mark Gordon had stated recently that the state may have to begin abandoning their small towns because right. of the state's inability to maintain streets and sewers. And that's very troubling to me, particularly because it illustrates presumably how reliant small towns and cities in Wyoming are on the fiscal health of the state. The revenue that's produced by Wyoming's oil and coal industry has essentially been subsidizing the costs of infrastructure and other services that might 
have otherwise been set up or perhaps not set up through local taxing jurisdictions and in another world. So I'm not going to sit here and act like I have a very deep understanding of Wyoming's tax structure and how they operate. But from a strong town's perspective, cities and towns should ideally be planned and managed so that they are not reliant on the state to provide basic services to their citizens. And even more importantly, there should be feedback that refrains unsustainable government spending and ensures that public services are scaled to what people are actually willing to pay and what they need. So it's interesting to me that in this case, the basic infrastructure of a small town is relying on the state's physical health rather than some sort of local tax. This is a disaster. And I'm glad you brought that up because when I read the article too, that was the first thing that jumped out at me. And then I just, I moved on because I'm like, yeah, I've, I've been there, done that. In Minnesota, we have 850 roughly cities, something like that. And we did a report here at Strong Towns back in, I want to say like 2009 or 10 or something, looking at the dependence of local governments on state aid, basically like money the state gave them every year. Uh, to operate, to have a fire department, to have a police department, to plow the snow off their roads. I mean, this wasn't building huge infrastructure projects because they're all dependent on that. This was just basically taking care of the essentials. And we ranked every city based on their dependence on state aid, like how bad, if state aid went away, which was a discussion at the time, how bad would it be? There's one city that I know, a city called Reamer, Minnesota, R-E-M-E-R. It's a palindrome. I know it because I was their city engineer for a while in the 90s. And I helped them. And I can say for, you know, for a fact that they are wholly dependent on the state. If the state aid went away, they would not have to cut their budget by 10% or 20%. They, they would cut their budget by 90%. And like nothing would happen in this city. It would be a ghost town. It would be done. Like they could not plow the streets. They could not keep the sewer and water system running. It would be overdone. When we ranked all the cities in Minnesota, out of 850 some, Reamer was around 350 in terms of the most fragile. There were over 300 cities that were in worse shape than this city that I knew was a complete basket case. If we go out to Wyoming and Montana and Idaho, and we start going through the list of cities out there, they're all in worse shape than this. They're all in worse shape. And, and they are all wholly dependent on the state and, and to some degree the federal government for just their basic, basic stuff. I mean, obviously that's not a recipe for success, but I think the narrative out there is, you know, this is the West. We're rugged individualists. We're, you know, self-sufficient. And the reality is the exact opposite. I don't say that to denigrate them. I say that to point out that you know, there needs to be a deep discussion on what it means to have a place that actually is self-sufficient. And it's it's not what they have now. Yeah, definitely. And not to be depressing, but when I read this article, I couldn't help but ask myself where, what does society do when our governments fail us or when they just fundamentally don't work? The challenges that our society has faced during this past year has just really made me realize how dangerous it can be to over over rely on different levels of government entities and how important it is for them to be strong, especially at the local level and how important local organizations are as well. And in the case of Wyoming's communities, 
local communities are not only relying on state government to work, but they are also relying on global industry to work properly. And according to their governor, the oil and gas war between the Saudis and Russians is greatly impacting what's going on there. And I just can't help but but wonder how you begin to unwind that when things are just so overconnected and so scaled up and, and it just doesn't function well for local communities. Well, I, I feel like the first thing you do is you say, we're not fighting a war with Russians in the international oil market. We're fighting a war to help our people stay out of poverty. Yeah. Um, you redefine what you're doing. Let me give you one example of success that I saw in Wyoming. I can't remember the name of the town, but th- they were basically doing farm-to-table work. So in Wyoming, uh, most of the wheat that is shipped out uh, goes through the port in Duluth. So it will get loaded on a train, shipped across the Dakotas, across Minnesota, and end up in Duluth, and then get shipped out. And it gets sent to somewhere else where it's turned into, let's say, uh, Cheerios, And then it is shipped back to Duluth, put on a train, and then brought to uh, Wyoming as Cheerios in a box. So if you are a farmer in Wyoming and you have a family, you get the lowest price of anyone in the country for your wheat because you get the price at the port in Duluth minus the longest transportation costs that anybody else has. Then you pay the highest price of anybody in North America for your Cheerios because you get the price that it costs at Duluth, plus all the transportation costs to get it to you. What they discovered is that they can actually create their own Cheerios and then just you know multiply that over many, many different categories of food. They can create their own food locally by growing for a local market. They still have exports, obviously, but they're meeting the needs of the local market first by focusing on producing food for the local market, doing all the processing there, doing all the packaging, they can actually employ people locally and create the food cheaper and pay a higher price to the farmer than what the international market gives them. These Western towns can do this in multiple dimensions, starting with food, but going into you know all kinds of different aspects of their lifestyle and create a ton of jobs for people that will be high paying that will circulate money around their own communities and make them all better off. That requires you to redefine the war you're fighting as not one against, you know, Saudi Arabia or Russian oligarchs, but against like your own, uh, really your own economy that you've been handed. I don't think that that's easy, but that is, you know, like to me, the only real viable path I see these places being able to take. Well, and it's going to be, a path that people may painfully be forced into. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not like there's a lot of other options moving forward. Um, maybe we'll be surprised. Yeah, but there is another option, and we've seen it a lot, and that is these places become ghost towns. And, yeah. you know, you and I could take a road trip through the Dakotas, and I will show you cities where, like, the booming industry – was uh, suburban houses. And then the booming industry was retirement communities. And then the booming industry was assisted living. And then the booming industry was funeral homes. And now the place is boarded up and, uh, you know, there's not much there. So we, we've seen this happen. I mean, th- there is a, a model and a trajectory for winding these places down. I, I just don't think that anyone living there 
would prefer that option if it were given to them today as like, you can have behind, you know, door A or door B, door A will be tough and it will be difficult and you'll have to be real rugged individualist, but you can live a good life. Door B is you can live this illusion for a while and then it will all fall apart and you'll go away. I think most people would take the harder path than door A, but it doesn't seem like that is an option given to them. Well, I think it needs to be expressed in clear terms and the, the illusional language and message needs to not be put out there. I, it's important at this point that, that leadership is being honest with the people. But you so. shared with me an article today written by Stephanie Kelton, who's one of the chief spokesmen of modern monetary theory. And you know the basics behind this article was, we got lots of room in the deficit, we can print the money, we can solve all these problems. And, uh, you know, we needn't worry. And if we do run into problems, we'll just tax rich people. I get the theory. I'm not disputing it. I think it's very seductive, particularly for people who find themselves in desperate straits, to think that there is a way to continue doing unproductive, insolvent things and have that continue on indefinitely. And I, I just, I think we will try to do that. I just don't think that's a very smart idea. Yeah, that seems to be the path that we are headed down. And I don't know if I, I buy that theory completely either, but I, I don't know that I have a lot of control over that. A lot of people seem to think that deficit spending is the pathway forward. And the, the article that, that uh, we were discussing earlier actually says that we should learn to love deficit spending. So, love okay. <laughs> Yeah, I love a good party. So let's have a let's have a good party, Abby. Yeah, yeah. We'll party on the way down. So <laughs> well, that's all the time that we have for today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we get to share anything that we've been up to this week. Um, we are recording the day before Thanksgiving, so it really hasn't even been a week since we last chatted, Chuck, and I, I hope that you are preparing for a relaxing Thanksgiving break this week. Uh, anything else that you've been up to? Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm working diligently on my own book, which has to be done at the end of next month, and I think I will make that deadline, so we're getting close. I also have been reading, I don't know if I brought this one up before, but I've been I've been going through a book called 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created. And I really like it. it it's I, it was funny because on the way here to work today, as I'm walking, there was a whole like long section about potatoes. And I'm like, am I really gonna tell Abby to read a book about potatoes? <laughs> um <laughs> But it, this book has been mind-blowing and very fascinating. It's about basically how, uh, after Columbus came to North America, how the world changed and how trade has changed us and globalization has changed us, you know, for, for centuries now. And so I would highly recommend it. It's a, it's a very engaging book. And you can skip over the section about potatoes unless you really are interested. I will read the chapter about potatoes. I think that being interested in potatoes is probably in my blood because my family came here during the potato famine. There you go. Yeah. yeah. He makes the case that potatoes are like the perfect, uh, the perfect food for humans. Like it provides all of our sustenance and it actually raised the population of Europe by about 15%. 
um, just because people could now have good nutrition uh, through the potato. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about the potato famine, but obviously it was people relied so much on potatoes that when they didn't have them, they got on a wooden boat and came across the ocean and built railroads throughout you know the United States. So that must have been pretty serious. Yes. The potatoes are a little sometimes they they're generous in terms of where they will grow, but the problem is is when you get the entire country dependent on one crop and then that crop fails, uh, that that doesn't work very well. And that was you know that was a problem that Ireland had and the Scandinavian countries had that same problem too. A couple rounds of where okay, now what? And now what is a large part of the population gets up and leaves. And a large part stars. I mean, that's the other part too that is horrific. Yeah. Seems to be a lot of a lot of repeated themes in these conversations that we've been having that have uh, <laughs> been true for for decades and decades. Uh, the you know I think sometimes, and this is part of my the last book that I wrote. You know, sometimes we think of ourselves as not part of nature, but you know, it's the the old libertarian argument that I always like heard was, you know, well, we're innovative. We'll figure things out. You know, humans have always figured things out. When we hit tough times, uh, we come up with solutions. And I'm like, yeah, we do. And a lot of times those solutions are a huge number of people die out and things get break and go away and we revert back to older forms of doing things. I mean, that that is one of the time-tested ways of solving these intractable problems. And yeah, we are innovative. Yay, libertarians. <laughs> You know, <laughs> right, right. Well, just because people have a way of figuring things out doesn't mean that it's not incredibly painful for a lot of people. It doesn't doesn't mean that we just, you know, come up with some technological innovation and and now we all are able to live in luxury forever. I mean, think things are always going to be painful and and like we've said before um, on our discussions, it's like failure is an option. Yeah. Well, when you look at a zebra and you marvel at, you know, its stripes and you're like, wow, that like evolution created that, that is genius. Um, What you should actually do is marvel at all the zebras that were killed who died, you know, by lions or what have you. So the ones that had great stripes could actually survive and reproduce themselves and become the dominant species. I mean, that, that's how things work is through destruction of things that don't work. And yeah, I I think sometimes as humans, whether it comes to cities or whatever, we think ourselves immune from that. And that's, that's, let's just print money, you know, we'll solve all the problems that way. Right. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Money will solve all of our problems, won't it? (laughs) It will. I'm just, I'm putting up a big box and you can just put all my printed money in that box and I will, I'll be happy. Great. Well, so I guess I guess what I have to share this week, I recently finished watching a mini series on Netflix called Queen Queen's Gambit. Have you heard of this? So, okay, not to not to derail you, but <laughs> I, I heard of it th- today because my family just signed up for Netflix and What? The, yeah, we don't we don't have we have not had that. And so like that was the one show it recommended to me. And I'm like, okay, I will I will watch the show. I haven't watched it yet though. So no spoilers, but go ahead and tell me about it. 
Okay, I will try to not share any spoilers. Yeah, I actually haven't been watching very much TV this year, basically. Um, but a friend recommended it to me, so I, I thought I'd give it a shot. Uh, and I just thought it was so, so well done. And for anyone listening who has not heard of Queen's Gambit at this point, it is basically... I guess I'll, I'll put it simply because I don't want to I don't want to give you any spoilers, but it takes place in a fictional world in the 1950s and 60s and follows the life of a chess prodigy who begins her journey while living in an orphanage as a child. And it follows her life and her struggles. And it's it's really a unique storyline and it's really beautifully produced and acted. So if you haven't seen it, I recommend you watch it. Maybe watch it this weekend. Well, my kids wanted Netflix and have for a long time, and I'm I'm not a TV person, and uh, I finally gave in. So now we now we have Netflix, and now I can be cool like everybody else and watch the latest stuff. I, I thought I was weird for just <laughs> having Netflix but not having cable. You uh, do you have cable? Uh, well, part of getting Netflix is we got rid of cable, so. No. Okay. I, 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 as of yesterday, I do not have cable anymore. But um, you won't miss it. I yeah, haven't I, had cable ever. Well, when I was a kid, I had cable. But since I've been on my own since I was eighteen, I I never ever ever got cable. Just Netflix and streaming. So that was the successful argument by my future lawyer daughter, who said, <laughs> "You know, we, we're paying for cable. We don't use it. I want Netflix. It's cheaper." And we will use it. And so I'm like, okay, let's, I respect the logic there. So dad, dad took care of that for them. Yes. Yeah. That's some solid logic. I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. <laughs> She's a smart kid. The thing she has figured out is how to, how to get things out of dad. You know, you can't just, <laughs> you, you, you can't just protest and whine. You have to have, you know, logical arguments and then dad will listen. And so, yeah, I'm encouraging that behavior. Well, that is great. Hopefully you guys have the opportunity to sit down and watch Queen's Gambit over the long weekend and it can be a fun family time. I think it's family friendly. I don't have any kids, so I have a hard time knowing if something is I'll family put it on friendly. The list. I never think about it. If it's not, I'm going to tell my wife that it was highly recommended by you as family friendly. So, <laughs> Yeah, fun <laughs> for the whole family. Uh-huh. All right. Well, Chuck, have a wonderful Thanksgiving and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Bye.